Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. We are jumping right into an interview we did yesterday over the weekend with Ahmet Gouverneur of uh, Turkey. He's now living here in the U.S., and he's got a lot of insightful things. He's part of the All In Project, which we are going to talk about coming up right now on the show. This is our interview with Ahmet Gouverneur. I was born to a white-collar family, and in Turkey, white-collar kids do not play soccer as much as the blue-collar kids like the rest of Europe. I was born to a family of physicians. Uh, but I loved the game. My father loved the game, and I fell in love with the game. So I played soccer as a goalkeeper in high school and college, an amateur, but I was at best a mediocre goalkeeper, at best. <laughs> Then I uh, moved here in 20, uh, 1978, and I used to referee some intramural games when I was at university in Turkey doing my undergrad work. Then I came to Wisconsin and started refereeing here. And then when I moved back to Turkey in 87, I was one of the top referees in South Texas and one of the best in the country, like top 50 or whatever. I don't know. In those days, there was no professional soccer. So... Um, I decided to go back. Uh, I went back and refereed for about two years in Turkey. Um, and then, uh, then I, and I, I became a member of the National Referee Committee. And then I became the chairman of the National, National Referee, which is head of refereeing, responsible for professional league referees and everything. I was the youngest ever uh, that became the chairman of that referee committee. Um, and uh, for some people, this is going to be bragging about myself, but I was a legendary um, because I, I changed a lot of things, in, especially on the educational side of um, refereeing, soccer refereeing. Then I became the youngest uh, member of the FIA panel of FIFA referee instructors in 1995. And I was on the panel until 2002 on that panel. And I was the only referee who did not have a FIFA badge on that uh, panel of FIFA referee instructors. I've been to various places on the planet to educate the referees uh, in those parts of the world. And then for a while I was away from soccer in 2004. I was in the, actually my background is in computer science. And so I spent until 2004 my time as an executive in, in, in information technology. And in 2004, a good friend of mine became the president of the Turkish FA. He asked me whether I could help him. I said, yes, I became his chief advisor and did a lot of things that changed the IT infrastructure, we started doing the uh, basically institutionalization of the federation, and then I became the uh, the chief soccer officer responsible for developing the youth leagues and academy leagues and everything in between. And then I, in 2009, I became the CEO of the Turkish FA, and uh, and then I left the federation at the end of 2010, and then. I thought I did everything for Turkish soccer because I was the head of refereeing. I was chief soccer officer. I was the um, um, I was the chairman. I mean, I was the CEO of the Turkish FA. Uh, I don't think there's any other professional in Europe that has been in those three seats like I have done. And then uh, I worked on the UEFA panel of referee convention and the panel of uh, FIFA, FIFA panel of referee instructors. So I worked at FIFA and UEFA. And then I decided I've done enough for Turkey and my son lives here. So maybe I thought I could come here and help the um, the soccer landscape here. Um, and then I moved here in 2016. My son got me a green card because he was born here. So I've been here since then. And with the pandemic, I'm kind of confined to indoors right now. And then I'll tell you the story of how the idea of the All-In Project developed. And then, so this is my soccer background. You don't want to know my uh, IT background most probably. So this is what I can say. I've done a lot of things for soccer in Turkey and I'm trying to help the soccer landscape here, which is not easy because it's very, very, very different than the rest of the world. You know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, we are, we are joined today on the show by Ahmet Gouverneur. Uh, and, and as you have uh, given us a little bit of your background here to open the show, 
uh, from Turkey, uh, now living here in the United States. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions before we got into the All In Project about your sure. background. Um, growing up as a, as a kid in Turkey, uh, you said you were from a, a white collar background and, and what that was playing and, and being involved in the sport may, may have not have been as uh, available or, or as important as it was for more of the, the blue collar families in Turkey, if I, if I understood you correctly. Um, yes, could you, exactly. Could, that, that reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the English game, uh, which is a, a series on Netflix that came out about uh, uh, football in, uh, in the UK uh, uh, pre-1900 um, and, and really the professionalization that occurred um, where it, it, it was basically undergoing a transition from primarily being the affluent in, uh, in the UK that were pro- playing the sport and excelling at the sport, uh, kind of a country club sport, to shifting more into uh, being kind of the every person sport. Uh, blue collar, white collar didn't matter. Eventually with professionalism, it kind of changed the landscape there in the UK. Um, Talk about that your 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 time as a child in Turkey, and, and and you know to play the sport and come up through the the system at the time, the access. What was it like for a kid in Turkey um, who who wanted to play soccer, play football uh, in Turkey at that time? Let's not forget this is 1960s. No, we're not talking about 1990s or 2000s. We're talking about 1960s when I was a teenager. Uh, then the only place you can play soccer is in the streets or in small fields, very unorganized soccer. There was no such thing as organized soccer for the kids. It was just amateur soccer and professional soccer for the grown-ups. And the kids grew up in the streets to develop their skills and became part of the uh, youth soccer at the age of 16, 17. So there was nothing below that in those years. Until very recently, there was nothing below that, actually. So kids in Turkey and elsewhere learn the game playing in the streets, in the backyards, in the alleys. And they played on the, on the beaches, like in Brazil. So basically, for a white-collar uh, family like I, was, I grew up in, the basic understanding is that you have to get a good education. And it's a fact that you cannot, uh, the exception is here, you cannot get a good education and become a professional player. There are very, very few um, professional players on the planet outside the United States that have got a college degree and played professional soccer. So this is their way out of the misery of becoming a working class, blue collar worker. So a lot of kids want to play soccer so they can skip one from one class to the other, a higher, more affluent class. So I didn't need to have, have that because I, I had a very good education and I, I, I could do things elsewhere, but still, Whenever I was coming from elementary school, I would find a small area where people played, and I joined them and played soccer, and my mother and my father would get mad at me because I would be late home. This is how, how I played the game. So uh, you, you said that changed recently. Is that part of the work that you did when uh, uh, post-2004, or was that changing already in the 90s? It was uh, changing in the 90s, but I think um, I was just um, the, the major – Youth Academy in Turkey that developed some of the best players in Turkey that play in Rome and, and, El, and, and Leicester City, uh, Çalışıyor and Cengiz in there, is Altınordu, which is a club in Izmir, uh, west side, west, uh, west, western Turkey. And they just um, named one of their facilities after me. So I got a facility in Turkey called Amir Kuener Sports Youth Facility. Because I started to develop, first of all, there were no um, different uh, age groups. In, this is post-2004. There were like two group age groups played together. Under 16 played under 15 and, and under 14. I split them into under 14, under 15. So they age played. And then I set up this what is called the academy um, league. Uh, and then they started playing, the top teams started playing to each other. And that was a major change then that I made to the system. But before that, um, the percentage of the youth players compared to the adults was like, 30% youth, 70% adults. Now I think it's close to 50, 50, maybe 60 youth, 40. Still, we do not have enough registered players in Turkey. We have about 400,000 for a 
country of size 83 million, this is peanuts. And this was what I was trying to take change, but I couldn't. I mean, I had to, after I left, they did not try that hard, to be honest, to increase that uh, because we have enough facilities. It's not just the mindset is not there. The mindset is more like everything is, is, is looking towards the professionals, how we can get better professional players, how we can get professional teams. So that mindset has to change and it will change eventually uh, because uh, things change in Europe and we have to change also. Did the did the implementation um, of FIFA's solidarity payments and training compensation ever uh, in your mind have any kind of impact there in Turkey or was it is it just not enough like in terms of the professional clubs viewing uh, youth development was that ever a part of that conversation that kind of uh, you know, focus on, hey, let's develop our own players. Obviously, that becomes cheaper for us in the yes, long run if we, if we develop. But, but we also can sell them on and get revenue, but then also look at solidarity payments and training compensation. Was that, was that part of that uh, conversation? Yes, definitely. This club, Altenordu, has spent about $50 million. It's a businessman owns the club. But he made quite a bit of it back through by just, you know, selling two players to 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 one of the, to Rome in Italy and Leicester City and then he still collects uh, money from those um, through those uh, systems so it is used uh, not extensively but it's a mode of um, getting revenue from those developed players so uh, going back to your your first uh, time here in America you you grew up in Turkey. You grew up in a in a different you know way of life, a different way of life for youth soccer. You know, as a player, and then you come to the United States. What was it? What was it like when you first got to America uh, back then? Uh, your first time here in the states, in terms of your your experience with the game. What what did you see? And what what were what were your first impressions of American soccer at the time? This is 1978. I got, as I said, I came in 78 and then 2006. In 1978, the two things that really surprised me was the level of women's soccer. Because of Title IX, it already started to develop. In, in Europe and in Turkey, there was nothing called women's soccer. It did not exist. If it exists, like, it was like show business. It wasn't, real. it wasn't the real game. I was surprised how well the women played here, the girls played here. And that was my first shock. The other shock was that there was no professional leagues then. When I came here, NASL was going downhill. When I left in 87, there was nothing left of the uh, of any professional leagues. Uh, and the amateur leagues were of uh, mediocre quality. Everything was of mediocre quality. To be honest, when I came back 30 years later, I expected far more development in 30 years because of the size of the country, because of the, uh, the revenues generated by different um, uh, systems and the economy of the, co the country. I expected better development. There was development in the refereeing side, there was development on the youth side, but not to the extent that I, I, I expected. Of course, I'm talking about the men's side, not the women's side. Women's has have always been the best in the world, are still the best, but they can keep it there is, 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 is problematic. So when I started writing for Soccer America like three years ago, I was a bit unrealistic. I did not realize the basic problems. I thought like things like pay to play, which is a problem, and I'll 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 just re I just read something. Yes, I'll I'll share the numbers with you. In this country, according to research and markets, twenty billion dollars is generated in 2019. I repeat, twenty billion dollars has been generated by youth sports. In the world, it's only twenty-five billion dollars. Twenty billion versus twenty-five billion dollars. Which means we are we are developing eighty percent of youth sports, not soccer, youth sports revenue of the world. The question is: Are we really developing the best eighty percent of the, all the athletes in all the sports? The answer is, of course, no. So it's big business here. Whether it's it is tuned to to bring in the quality players, I have serious questions about that. And I now realize it's not that easy. To stick a high, to stick, uh, put a stick into a beehive, which is pay to play, and change it. It's not easy to change the lack of promotion delegation. These are major problems, and the constituents that form U.S. soccer is very much different than the rest of the world. It's very difficult to change that. So, 
I hope the best for the presidency, new CEO of U.S. soccer, but they have a very different world than the rest of the world. And navigating through that is very difficult. I agree. I want to go through a couple of those things you just brought up. Um, big, big favorite topics of ours on the show. Uh, the first is obviously, um, as you cited the st- statistics on the money, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, false myths, uh, you know, that are out there, false truths, myths, uh, that there's not enough money or not enough support, not enough interest in the sport of soccer. I completely disagree with that notion. I think the money proves that it's, it's uh, the interest is there. The resources are there. They're just allocated to the wrong places. Uh, they're not aligned with where they need to be. It's not that we lack the resources. We just don't have them properly aligned. Uh, second, uh, point that you brought up is is the you know we we know about pay to play and and the the fact that a club in order to operate if it's not receiving revenues from you know television and commercial sponsorships and the selling of the players they develop training compensation etc they've got to get their money somewhere uh, which increases their dependence on uh, pay to play soccer um, that is not an excuse for some of the, the amount of money that, that these organizations charge, which I think is just highway robbery. But um, in order to operate, they've got to get their money somehow, some, some way to, to operate. Um, the, but the, the one point that you brought up that I, I was interested to, to dig into a minute before we get into to more of the system uh, aspects and the all-in project is the makeup of the the FA in in America? It's U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, around the world, you have the Turkish FA, you have the English FA, you have all these different federations that 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 oversee and govern the sport. What are the constituencies? The makeup of that constituency at, at let's say the Turkish FA, which you have uh, you know extensive experience and knowledge about, and others around the world. What is their constituency uh, like compared to what we have here in America? Now, let's forget about the Turkish constituency because it's one of the worst in Europe. It's represented 91% by professional clubs, which means it is like the MLS completely controlling the U.S. soccer. So this is the, in the, the research done in Europe shows the maximum percentage of votes in, an, in a general assembly of, a, of any federation is 50% to professional clubs, 50. And in Turkey, it's 91. The 50% belongs to Netherlands, the Holland, to Holland. Let's look at Belgium. There are three major constituents, the professional leagues, the adult leagues, and the youth leagues, for both genders, correct? This is a reality everywhere. There are professional leagues, there are amateur leagues, but there are adult amateur leagues and youth amateur leagues, okay? First of all, in Europe, if you start to play for an amateur club at the bottom of the pyramid, you have the chance to become a professional eventually if you succeed on the field. So there's transparency or from one to the other, from the youth to the amateur to the, to the professional. So they all share the same goal. Basically, every adult team Every adult team has its youth um, uh, teams under 19, under 18, under 17. Whereas if you don't find this, the U.S. Adult Soccer Association and U.S. YSA and the rest are completely separate. There is nothing in between that they share. So there is no transparency from going from one to the other. There is, and the MLS without promotion relegation, this is just an objective um, this is just, I'm looking at the, the scene. I'm not criticizing the lack of promotion allegation. Don't get me wrong. This is the reality of this country. But then the professional clubs, the adult clubs, and the youth do not share anything in between. They have their own agendas. And U.S. soccer wants to bring all of them to the same agenda that's saying we want to have the best men's and women's national, national teams on the planet. Why would they agree? There's nothing common that they could agree on. I mean, is it a priority for the youth leagues, for the men's the national team uh, to be the best in the world? I doubt it because it brings nothing to that, to those constituents. This is the problem. I mean, can I make, can I make myself clear? Yes, yes. I mean, you, you, you absolutely have 
Uh, I use the term silos when we look at uh, American soccer. You have, uh-huh. as you described, you have the the youth uh, council. If if we t- if we if we uh, use U.S. Soccer Federation jargon lingo uh, for how they look at the different uh, categories, the way they've split up um, the American soccer landscape. They have the youth council, they have the adult amateur council, and then they have the professional council. They have a fourth council, which is uh, a little different than, than what you mentioned over in Europe, which is they have the uh, athlete council. And that's a U.S. law that mandates that the, the um, athletes and, – and just to be clear for anyone who's, who's confused about this, this athlete council is not responsible for representing um, American soccer players. The athlete council – is narrowly defined to represent Olympic and national team players. Um, that is what is in the Ted Stevens Act. So their mm-hmm. their job and responsibility, um, and this is this is something that I didn't really fully get until I was working with Eric Winaldo when he was running for president of U.S. Soccer in 2018. I I foolishly and I and looking back, I would say naively thought that athlete council members would be standing up for athletes in this country, that they would be looking out for the millions of registered players and the multitudes of unregistered soccer players in this country, wanting more opportunity and access for those players. But that group of players that are on the athlete council are from the Olympic and national team programs and their, their charter and their responsibility is is about that they have they have no obligation in the way that u.s soccer's bylaws are written nor by their legal obligation u.s soccer with the ted stevens act to make that athlete council uh be representative and and fight for opportunities and access for all soccer players in america it's just that very 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 tiny little bit so you've got these four councils youth Adult amateur, you've got professional, and then you've got the athlete council, and they're all siloed. They all have, you know, inner workings that may, um, you know, play off of each other. For example, Don Garber, who has the lion's share of power within the professional council, um, you know, an influence over the athlete council because of having in the ability to control the purse strings of Soccer United Marketing as the CEO. Um, which which works hand in glove with U.S. Soccer on the the commercial and television uh, rights and, and other uh, aspects. Um, so there's a lot of you know uh, influence there with the athlete council, and and then you've got others where you may have state associations, for example, mm-hmm. who have major league soccer teams in their states. And there may be state associations who are trying to get. Uh, cities into Major League Soccer who want to play friendly with Don Garber. They don't want to, you know, uh, piss him off so that that they can get their team included into uh, MLS. And and so you have this very, um, you know, kind of uh, disparate group of councils who don't have any unifying reason to be on the same page, as you pointed out. They have no... Uh, you know, responsibility within the the bylaws and policies to do what's best for the game. It's about, hey, you take care of yourself, you do your thing, um, and and you handle yourself. And and really the federation kind of, you know, stands over to the side and tries to wash their hands of all the conflict, but it's really their lack of leadership that has created so much of the climate and issues that it, that are causing the conflicts in the first place. I agree with you. Let me say something. Um, although in Belgium you don't have that, in many federations, coaches and referees and players are represented. As you know, uh, the, 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 the National Assembly or National, whatever it's called, that, that meets once a year, there are no representative referees. Referees are very important stakeholders of the scheme. None, zero. There is one person representing USC, United Soccer Coaches, so, and the Athletes Council, which represents the supposedly coming from the Ted Stevens Act, the, the athletes. What is interesting is that the Ted Stevens Act is for the national governing bodies, and it does not allow them to actually have any say in the professional game. 
So that has been challenged, as you know, in courts. That's another issue that at one day might be problematic for U.S. soccer. So when I first came in being naive about the whole situation, I was actually criticizing U.S. soccer. I'm not anymore. With those constituents, you need a very strong leadership to be able to navigate and bring them all in the, towards the same focus or towards the same goal, which is not that easy. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very difficult. So the whole structure has to be changed. And who can do it and how they can do it, I do not know. Until that is changed, it will be very difficult, at least for the men's national team, to be one of the best in top 10. We'll never be like the women's national team, the men's national team. But if we can actually be in the top 10 always, now we're in the top 20, plateauing around there to top 10, that would be great. Play a semifinal, you know, maybe once in every other uh, World Cup, that would be great. Even getting there will not be easy with this structure of the, the National Council. This is what I'm saying. So it's very difficult. Good luck to the new president. Good luck to the new CEO. It is not easy. Plus all these litigations, plus all... Let me tell you, quote you some more numbers. The, the budget of U.S. soccer is $110 million. People say, they got a lot of money. They got, first, with the pandemic, it's going to be less now. But I manage the Turkish FA of a country of 83 million with only 400,000 registered players. My budget was $120 million. The same amount U.S. soccer, which is four times the population of my country, Turkey. My new country now has um, nearly 10 times more registered players. And there are nearly as much, maybe more, that play unregistered soccer. So that number, 110 million, is nothing. Peanuts. Peanuts. And they lose every year, you know, and they use the funds that generated through the, 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 the 100th uh, anniversary of the um, uh, Copa America plus the, uh, uh, the World Cup from 1994. They are using those funds to make up for the difference. So they are... I really don't want to be in the shoes of neither the CEO of the president of Turkey, the U.S. soccer, because it's a very difficult job. And people are demanding a lot of things from U.S. soccer, and that is not easy. With those numbers, with this structure, it is very difficult. So looking at uh, the, 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 the setup, the governance setup of U.S. soccer and the constituencies, if you were to, you know, uh, do a rewrite, a restart, a rebirth of U.S. soccer in order to get things better aligned uh, and, and set up properly as you've experienced around the world, uh, what would U.S. soccer look like if you were able to, you know, draw things up uh, properly to, to have them, you know, working in a unified purpose, vision, manner, etc.? First of all, I'm not sure where that could be possible with the legal structure here. I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, when you want to implement uh, solidarity payments and um, the, you, you face up with legal challenges. I mean, I heard from the previous uh, administrator of U.S. soccer, all kinds of reasoning like child labor and, and, and other things that, you know, are, are, are basically uh, obstacles to implementing solidarity payment and training compensation. Whether that's true or not is another issue. The issue is that this is the most litigious society on the planet. So every, make, every move you make will be, will be um, uh, met with some resistance and some sort of litigation. First of all, the fragmented structure of the youth and the adults should somehow be, a, be ended. That wasn't meant how it... So how could this be done? I haven't the faintest idea. And this is not easy. I don't think anybody has an idea. Without promotion and relegation, how can you bring all of them to this with the hope of becoming a, one, once an MLS team? I don't know. So these, can you bring them promotion and relegation? No, not in the near future. That is not possible. That is practically not possible. You have to be realistic. I mean, I did talk to Eric Vinalda then also. He was hoping to get, I'm, I hope now by now he understands it's not easy to bring promotion and relegation. You'll meet with a lot of, with a lot of resistance from the professional leagues, even the, the, the amateurs will not be very much willing to go into that path because then they'll have to reorganize themselves so they could, uh, they could go up the ladder. So the first thing, the constituency and the govern, governance of the, the model has to change. Everybody should agree that we have to do better for the game and then they could do the change. But if they look into their own um, benefits, their own myopic vision of what they see 
as the state association or as the youth and, and the others, it is very difficult. You have, they have to have broader vision of what could be done for the game. And so I'm not very optimistic in the very short run. And with this pandemic, it's things will even, maybe it will help. Maybe people will realize how actually vulnerable we are with the pandemic, how much we lose uh, our footing on, on the game. And maybe that will, that will help. But, you know, I, I, really, I really think that U.S. soccer, has, people criticize them. And I agree with some of the criticism, but basically there is not much they can do with this structure. It's they, the, the constituents has to agree to change the structure. U.S. soccer cannot change the structure, the constituents. Those three plus the Athletes Council have to come together and say, this is not working. We have to change this. And then U.S. soccer can function. Otherwise, U.S. soccer has got very limited um, navigation tools to go around the obstacles. This is how I see it. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, which leads us to the all-in project, right? <laughs> this, is a, this is something we're all in here in this conversation, looking at uh, U.S. soccer, American soccer, um, as someone, uh, as we've talked about already in this, uh, in this show, um, you know, someone who, who has uh, a lot of, of background and experience in the global game, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the All In Project. What's the big idea here? Okay, let me tell you how the, can, you can see the screen, right? Yes, the screen yes. Is on. Now, the whole idea started, um, when I started writing this, these articles for Sacred America, Somebody called me once and said he's the, uh, uh, the owner of Laredo Heat. Laredo Heat used to be a PDL team, now it's an MPSL team. They won the national championships some years ago. Laredo is a border town in just across Mexico. It's five hours from where I live now. I live a bit north, so six hours from where I live on the border. She said, can you help us to become a DA? I said, let me have a look. I'm still their consultant. You well, consultant with the pandemic, we're not doing much. But anyway, I, I actually went down to, to Laredo. It's a town of 250,000 people, 99%, 98%, I don't, 96%, I don't know, Latinos. Uh, and, and, and then I went and, and started to dig in and realized, I asked him, how many registered players do you have with Laredo Heat with U.S. soccer? He said, hundreds. I said, you must be kidding. Is it all? Yes, this is all. They have 100 or 100 plus players registered with U.S. soccer. They still have that much. And it's a town of 99%. I said, why don't they play? He said, we made it free to play. We charged them only $50 a year or something, very small amount. Still, they won't pay and they won't join us. So there was a problem. These kids are not joining the system. Why aren't they joining the system? Now, I'll skip forward and come like three months ago. Uh, three months ago, I am a regional uh, um, referee coach. So I went to assess a referee for a semifinal game in the adult uh, the state cup, South Texas state cup semifinal. And I was there to assess the referee and there were two teams. One of the teams, the name I never heard, and they were all Latinos. And they beat this team from San Antonio easy, 3-0. They wept them out, actually. They played so good. I said, where are these guys from? They said, they are from Laredo. I said, you must be kidding. There's no adult league in Laredo. When I dig in, dug in, I realized that they actually registered just to play for this tournament, but they brought such a good team that they beat every team so easily. So there's incredible talent there. Now going back three years or two years, one day Doug Anderson, who is the um, former chairman of the uh, Task Diversity Force for US Soccer called me and we started chatting and talking about the, the, the different uh, aspects of the game and the, how the underprivileged do not play registered uh, soccer uh, or affiliated soccer. And I asked, I mean, sure, U.S. soccer must have done some research on this and then uh, and know the reasons and looking for solutions. He said no. Then we developed this project, and then we're now at the phase of, you know, hopefully starting the project in 2021, there are three phases to the project. The first phase where I think we'll be able to fund it uh, uh, through U.S. soccer, we're hoping. And the next phase, which is the bigger one, which is about a million dollars, we'll have to find a, 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 a someone to fund it. But let me go through the project. First of all, this game right now for the registered kids or the adults, I'm not going to say the adults, but the kids, the white middle class people who have cultural monopoly on American soccer. 
Latinos before below the age of 18 make 25% of the U.S. population. Overall, they make 18% of the population. The U.S. women's national team has only 14 players of color in the last 25 years. And national, there are two, only two research done on this. One of them is Bennett and Captain Research in 2015, which came up, that compared the, uh, the U.S. men's national team players with NFL and NBA players. And they found out that it's the, the U.S. men's national team players in 2015 came from communities. They use zip codes of where they were born. The higher incomes, better education, and better employment rankings, and were whiter than the U.S. average. This was 2015. So it's obviously a white man's game. If you look around, you'll see it. When I look at go, go and watch games uh, in, in South Texas, I mean, there are a lot of Latino kids playing, but you know, still a majority of the kids are, are white kids playing the game, which is because of pay-to-play, needless to say. But this is not the only issue. It could be because they are not documented. Maybe there are cultural barriers. There are travel barriers. We do not know. And what is true in, in one part of the country might not be true in another part of the country. So we have to understand what is causing this. And then the very latest report of Aspen Institute says that the kids from lower income homes face increasing participation barriers. This is for all sports. In 2018, 22% of the kids aged 6 through 12 in households with incomes under 25,000 played sports, compared to 43% of the kids whose earnings were $100,000 or more. So the wealthier you are, the more chances you will have. With the pandemic, the kids who cannot play the game because of the cost of it will increase. This is inevitable. Families who can afford for their kids to play, pay $50 a month, will not be able to pay that next year because they'll be poorer because of all the recession and all the economic uh, problems. So um, so we only, only 8% of kids play soccer on a regular basis in 2018, and it's a drop from 2011 to 26%. And we know that the men's national team failed to qualify 2018. Our 2017 women's under women's teams did not advance past the group stage, although they won the uh, World Cup in 2019. Now, then I did a research and published an article in, 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 in Soccer America. I looked at the roster of 2020 U.S. men's national team. This is not a picture of them, uh, but they unfortunately did not play any games because of the pandemic. This is what I found. There are seven African-Americans, 32%, six Latinos, and nine whites. Don't forget, African-Americans constitute about 13% um, of our um, demography, and 18% of demography are Latinos. So they were high, more highly represented than in the past, and still they were, um, they were represented by those amounts. What is even more interesting, out of the 13, one of them was a first generation immigrant, 13 meaning African-Americans and Latinos, and 10 were second generation immigrants. So out of 13, either the first or second generation immigrants playing soccer. So most of the African-Americans were second generation immigrants. So they came from countries where soccer was a way of life. So these, all these kids playing for, or the grown-ups playing for the mass national team grew up in a soccer culture because their families, their parents love the game. This is very clear from those pictures. So basically, if you look in Europe, you look at Belgium, Germany, uh, France, England, you'll see lots of lots of immigrants playing for their national teams. So this is a great resource for those countries and it should be a resource for ours. So we must remove all barriers that do not allow them to play organized soccer so they could be scouted and eventually recruited for the national team. I'm talking about both men's and women's sides. But on the men's side, it's more important because of we are not doing as well as the women's side. So basically, another research done by Jamie Hill in 2019 produced incredible results also. He researched 900 and some men's players who played professional soccer and looked at the zip codes where they were developed. So the 900 and some professional male players, men players who played the game. And then what he found out, there were 236 
think with a population of less than 500,000, which did not develop a single man professional soccer player. There are 10 states who did not develop a single um, men's national player, which is obvious that the, the, the game is not well distributed among, around the states. And which is even more interesting, in the 23 big cities he did the research on, Houston was ranked last, which is the most diverse city among those 23 in terms of the, the number of uh, professional players they developed versus the population. 492 uh, persons to one was the ratio. So Houston was deep uh, at the bottom of the list of 23 large cities. And then if you look at the map of the United States with the uh, mostly Latino, 66 to 96 percent Latino counties, which are in the southern Texas border and New Mexico, they only had 21 professional players developed. Only 2% of all the players that ever were developed by this. These are Latino communities which should be living with soccer because this is the, the way of life in, in Latin America and in Central America. So these tell us that we have to look into the underprivileged and the Latino communities to draw more to, to, into our national teams, into the college, and plus, if we're not even interested in the chances of those kids becoming either a national team player or pro player or getting a college scholarship is around 1%. So we must also, bringing them in under the umbrella, we can also help them develop their characters, develop them socially, develop them um, culturally, develop them physically. And there are, there are projects all around the country, in our database about close to 50, that have, been, that, that have attacked them locally. And then they just tried to create a way to make sure that these kids somehow play the game on the US soccer. And we have to look into those projects and then maybe replicate them in other parts of the country which where there are similar problems. So this is all what is there in, the, in, in our, so basically, eventually, this is what's gonna happen. In by 2050, 45% of our population will be African-American or Hispanic. This is what is forecasted. Now, the barriers among the minority populations are very com complex and they are regional. What is correct in one is not the same as in another one. So what do we want to do? We want to identify which demographics of youth are not currently playing sanctioned soccer in the United States and the reason why this is the case. So this is the first aim of the project. The second aim of the project, analyze the feasibility addressing key barriers and prioritize select factors on which to focus through some systematic analysis, and then identify and proven an effective solution like best practices, like the projects I mentioned, like 50 or more, and there are many, I'm sure I'm just gonna add one or two that I found out yesterday to that list to overcoming those key barriers on both national and local level. So basically, and create a blueprint for scaling solutions to transform the demographic profile of youth soccer in the United States. Now that said, this project has to be embraced by US soccer. When I talked to the two board members of US soccer very recently, they asked what we mean by embrace. I explained, we'll come up with results and we'll just give you the results. And we're hoping by embracing, you'll have look at the results and do something with those results. If you're gonna say, oh, good results and put it aside, there's no point in developing this project or in spending our time and someone's money to, to develop the results because unless you look at the results of this project and change something, whatever you want, the way you wanna change it, then it will be embraced by US soccer. So, and they said, yes, then will, they thought that whatever we come up with, they have to implement it. No, this is just, this tells you a way of, getting around the problems, getting around the barriers, and then whatever way you want to do it is up to your soccer because they basically you need more players, you need better quality players, and that will help all the constituents. Um, so basically, um, the project details is that there's a system analysis phase, and there's a design and execute research which we'll do with a university, and then eventually map the effective solution and develop recommendations. Um, the uh, we have a very strong advisory board, including Sarah Murray, who, who will be heading this first phase, Doug Anderson, Ed Garza, the former mayor of San Antonio, uh, Kobe Jones, 
Dr. Monica Stadolska, who will be leading, and Dr. Sebastian Giraldo will be leading the, uh, the academic part of the project, and Julia Serrano, who is a Latino Coaches Advocacy Chair at United States Soccer Coaches. So we have a very strong advisory board, and then uh, we're hoping that in 2021, first quarter, we'll start with the first phase and try to end the project at the end of 2022. So that will give some time for U.S. soccer to implement them and maybe have some better place for the World Cup in 2026. This is what we want to do, basically, um, uh, with the project. Uh, it's a very ambitious project, but I think this country needs this project. We have to find out why the underprivileged kids are not playing soccer. The easy answer is pay to play, but I don't think that is the only reason. There are other cultural barriers, and we have to find one by one, based on what region those barriers at, and then find solutions to them. This is what the All In Project is all about. So in terms of some of the barriers or the conversations you guys are having right now before you actually get into full-blown uh, launch of the project in early 2021, what are some of those conversations like right now uh, in terms of potential barriers? Obviously, you mentioned the big win, pay-to-play, and, ex and the expenses, the costs. What are some other aspects that, that okay. you guys have looked at? It might be a cultural problem. And when, it, when, when, when you have Laredo, 99% Latinos, maybe the Latino parents might not like their kids to, to, to actually go and play with the white kids. This is just an assumption. They might like to keep them separate and play in their own culture and under their own uh, system. This is my thing. I'm just guessing because the other one, the travel issue. There are two problems with Laredo. If they're undocumented players, when they go through the checkpoints, they have any problems. They don't want to travel. Another issue is that because of the, the way that the game is being played at the elite level, there's a lot of travel. And for some kids, it's not that easy for the parents to take them to those games because there is a travel issue. So undocumented, cultural, travel, pay to play. These are the issues that we think that are the problems. Of course, for example, with the urban African-American kids, it's not in the culture to play soccer. So you have to change the cultural mindset for them to play the game. They'll play basketball or, or a football. So, and there are some interesting projects like the Harlem FC uh, that's being done in, in Harlem, New York City, that trying to bring in the African-Americans, not immigrants. African-Americans who've been in this country for, for decades um, into the game. So these are the issues that we think of. Maybe there are others. It will come out surface when we do the research that we, there are things that we never thought of is the result why the barriers are there. So from uh, let's fast forward through the project here and, and get back to the conversation between uh, you all and U.S. soccer, for example. What would you be hoping for uh, U.S. soccer to, to be able to do? What, what are some, um, you know, hypothetical solutions that, that U.S. soccer from a federation perspective could look at doing to, to, to implement, to begin to change this cultural issue and, and hopefully either eliminate or severely reduce the barriers that uh, families are facing in terms of participating in U.S. soccer? Okay, as I said, first we'll have to find out why kids or adults are not playing soccer under U.S. soccer. And this will be regional. What is what, will, what is the reality in uh, Northeast U.S. or in border of Texas or Southern California or Nebraska will be completely different. And there, there are solutions. Like there is a solution of USLA in, in San Antonio, uh, which is um, the Soccer Leadership Academy. That they are trying to bring, bring in the kids through the high schools where there's, they don't have to pay to play into the system and they have, they, have got, they have done an incredible um, project, a successful one. Maybe in a similar setting in another city, U.S. soccer might look at this project and say, this is a great project. Let's help them replicate this in Denver, Colorado. I'm just making up some city. Or New Orleans, Louisiana. I don't know. I'm just making it. So here are the reasons. Here are some of the solutions in different parts of the country. Let's try to bring them together and replicate them and solve the problem. because. The way you solve the problem in the border area will not be applicable to solve the problem in Northeast United States or 
uh, North California. They will be different. But then there are local solutions. So this will, it will tell them first the reasons why they are not playing under U.S. soccer and the solutions in the local solutions and how those could be replicated in similar settings. This is what is expected of U.S. soccer. That's it. So um, from a from a change perspective, you know, to to to, to make change, create change uh, within U.S. soccer. What what would uh what, would this be implemented at a club level? Is there going to be a would there be a strategy for a club? Uh, would there be a strategy for state associations? Um, you know, where do you see solutions like this? All of the above. There is no one single solution. It all depends on the region, on the problems, and on the solutions that were implemented there by by a third party. They'll have to look and decide and apply. There is no, this is like the pandemic. There is no one single medicine to treat it. It depends on the patient. You have to do a couple of things together to make the, to make the patient better and, and, and release from the hospital. So we don't know. It, it, different uh, drugs could be used, different uh, projects could be used in different locations. So in, in the, the conversations that you guys are having now in terms of shaping your approach to, to getting this rolling, um, it, is this something where you're going to try to um, do a widespread search or is this going to start as kind of a local like pilot program? What, what are the thoughts uh, in terms of this initial uh, stage of implementation? Uh, is it going to be localized, regionalized, or is it going to be national? Um, once this, the, uh, the research part of it starts, we'll have to um, pick up anywhere from 10 to 15 um, locations where the exemplary uh, where, where, where the, the data sampling would be would make sense. Once we know those 10 to 15 locations, we'll send a team working with the local coaches to extract that note, to extract that um, data, the data being why they are not playing the game. Once we extract that data, we'll match it with the solutions which is going on in those regions and try to find a solution. So I would say it's a regional approach and there will be 10 to 15. I'm not sure about the number, but we cannot do it just like... 80 places, but at least 10, maybe 15 different locations um, where there are the sampling would make sense. And one of them, I can assure you, will be the uh, south border area of Texas, and the others will come uh, throughout because this is the area I know well. This will come out uh, as we do our research. So one of the challenges when you know people look at U.S. soccer in the American soccer landscape, like how do we? How do we make improvements? How do we make things better? How do we build a better future, et cetera? Um, I, I think American soccer could be the you know, greatest soccer country on earth if we ever got our act together. But one of the things that goes into that is, is the fact that we are a, a continent-sized country. We have um, you know, population densities uh, in, in certain parts of the country. You can get to each other pretty quick, uh, relatively speaking. And then you have other areas uh, you know, where you, where you start getting to the Southwest and then out West where you, you, you can, you know, play locally, but then if, if you were going to play someone from another town, it's not, Hey, we're going to drive 15 minutes or 30 minutes. It's, Hey, we're going to drive four hours to the next, next major kind of city to, to find some competition. So, um, looking at, you know, that aspect of this, uh, how, you know, in terms of a creative solution, um, you know, how do you get around some of these things like travel uh, that are right now are they are a big deal for for a lot of families in this country to All be right. able to participate? Um, right. How do you get around that? How do you how do you create a solution for travel? For example, one project is they the, the team bought a bus and actually took the kids from high schools and brought them to to practice and took them back. So that's one 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 approach. Uh, or you can actually do 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 other approaches and and minimize the uh, the travel plus uh, find so I, this is one solution that somebody mentioned that I know I'm sure people if you look there are, if you look into details of those projects you'll find other solutions that bring the kids to play soccer uh, in 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 the, from different areas of the city or, or the state usually it's not the state that we're talking about we will talk about the city 
a major city that people, even then it's a problem. Even then traveling from one location to the other might be a problem. Uh, but each city will have to find its own solution. Each state will have to find its solution. It, this country is as big as Europe. What the solution is in Belgium is not applicable in Greece. What is applicable in Greece is not applicable in Estonia. Same difference. But there must be a, a general approach and then, um, and so, and, and, and local applications. So in, in looking at the, the project, the all-in project, um, the ultimate goal is obviously to get more kids playing, especially those who are marginalized or, or not part of the system uh, in general. Uh, I, I know from personal experience, having run a free-to-play club, so we eliminated the pay-to-play barrier uh, right off the top. We went out and got sponsors, my, my own company, uh, that I own, we self-funded a lot of it as well, and and you know for that reason we you know we didn't have uh, you know four million players playing for us because you know it, that that would just increase our costs. Uh, it was very small, a single squad of about twenty-five players. But what I found that I didn't know going into it is that transportation is not just a game day issue. It is a daily issue. In other words, as you mentioned, you know, having a bus to pick kids up to get them to and from practice, not just a weekend travel tournament. Uh, you know, I and, and, and some of my other uh, volunteer coaches, we were all volunteering. We were, none of us were making money. Um, we're, you know, carpooling and, and picking kids up after school and taking them to training and then taking them home parents' work schedules just didn't uh, allow for those, uh, you know, some of those kids to get to practice unless we pick them up. Um, and, and so I think, I think we've got to have um, uh, an open mind. You know, it's real easy to be dismissive and say, well, look, my club offers a scholarship. So pay to play is not an issue. You know, we, we, we can, we can scholarship a kid. Well, scholarships, that, that's like, you know, one, thing on a list of maybe five or six or eight or 10 things that you have to address. And, and I, I do think for too long, the, the attitude and culture within this federation has been, you know, uh, kind of this, like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like, we don't want to have that, you know, deep conversation or that deep kind of introspection of uh, how we do what we do. But the bottom line is, is like if you if you stop and and look and learn and listen to what's really going on, you'll find that like offering a scholarship to a player who maybe can't afford your fees uh, isn't enough, and 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 it goes way beyond that. And uh, and I hope that your your project um, you know is able to to convey that uh, in the end. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what solutions you guys are able to, uh, to uncover and, and to see what U.S. soccer, quite frankly, uh, wraps their uh, hearts and minds around, um, you know, because uh, I don't have a lot of confidence uh, there. But maybe, maybe they will. Maybe they'll see some of this and go, hey, we could, we could at least execute some of these strategies from a federation perspective and then offer some best practices uh, for a local perspective that, that – can be implemented. So, um, you know, in terms of, of the project, you know, going forward, your timeline, you said is early 2021. Um, when do you hope to have this thing completed and, 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 and over what amount of time do you uh, foresee a kind of a generational shift taking place? Is that a five year, 10 year window? What are you looking at? Yeah. Results will be hopefully uh, out by the end of 2022. Um, because the research will take about a year, uh, three months to the system analysis, another three to six months to put everything together. Uh, then will be passed on to the uh, to U.S. Soccer. Now, in order, if you look at Germany, when they won the uh, World Championship in 2014, they started this process of changing the culture and the development process 10 years ago. So it takes about anywhere between five to 10 years for something to change. So you cannot just do something today and expect the results tomorrow or a year later. So if I am hopeful is that two members of the board have shown interest in bringing Latinos on board. This is very important. 
the CEO, the new CEO, when he started the, the, his new role as the CEO of um, uh, U.S. soccer, said that we have to bring Latinos into the game. So these are very positive um, uh, developments on the side of U.S. soccer. We have, that's why we are hopeful. But let me tell you one thing. This is very important. The pay-to-play creates its own problems of chicken and egg problem. In Europe, the cities will have fields, and then you can practice there, play there without a fee. Because you don't charge the kids any money. But here, the city makes all those, most of those fields. And when you go to play, they will ask you to pay a rental fee uh, for, for the field. And the reason being, you charge your kids. So you must pay us. So this is a chicken and egg problem. The, the pay-to-play creates some of the problems of the, the cost of the, of the game. Uh, so basically, so even if we have a free-to-play, most probably the city will not look at it and say, well, the rest are all pay to play, you're free to play, let's not charge you. They might still charge you. So I know that the charge of the field, the, the, the amount of travel, the amount, the, the, there are so many cost items that you know travel issue is just one of them. So basically you must find a solution to all of those. And as I said, it's very local. I don't know what you've done over there, but I know what they have done in San Antonio and elsewhere. And they, they are very unique and interesting solutions. And they could be replicated. What you have done, could it be replicated somewhere else? Um, club? Yeah, I mean, I think it could. I think a lot of clubs could do what we did. Um, and, and, and it's really going to come down to do the people have the heart to embrace it, right? Running the clubs. Do they want? Uh, Wouldn't you be willing to help a city to set up a club like yours, if there are people, I'm sure there are people with heart. It's just a matter of looking into the problem. Right. So what you've done could be replicated elsewhere. I don't yes, know where, where, you, where are you in Louisiana? Is that where you are? I'm actually like two hours east of New Orleans. So I'm I'm in Alabama, right on the Gulf of Mexico, right next okay, to. Okay, fine. To so Gulf you Florida. are you're very close to where I live. So what you've done in Alabama could be replicated in Louisiana or anywhere close to you, or even somewhere else. So we have to know what you're doing. I mean, pay. After I'm finished, I'll ask you to send me some more information so I can include your club on the database of free-to-play clubs because this is, this is important for us. We have to gather all that information, what everybody is doing around the country. And there are different solutions and different approaches that could be replicated in similar situations. This is all there is to it. Right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Best of luck with uh, the All In Project. Uh, if people wanted to follow the project and kind of learn more about it, uh, is, how, how can they do that uh, on, their, on their own time and researching what you guys are researching? Uh, we have a um, website. We start, uh, it's www.theallinproject.org. If they log into that, they will have all the information Lots of uh, articles on diversity and inclusion, lots of articles on, on soccer, lots of projects, free-to-play projects, the database for that, and all the information about our project will be there, and it will take being expanded as we go along. Well, I appreciate your time, Ahmet, and I, and I really hope um, that you guys are able to find some really uh, good and creative positive solutions uh, for the country because as we have talked about in this interview and we talk about on the show all the time, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> and definitely, so uh, uh, I, I hope to I'm see. I'm very optimistic, but not in the near future, but in the, you know, not in a year or two, but in about 10 years, things will be better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you uh, for coming on the show. Look forward to having you back I on again you very, soon. You know, hosting me on the show. Thank you very Ab much. Absolutely. Have a great day. See you too. That was our uh, interview with Ahmet Gouverneur. Big thanks to him for joining us on Mother's Day to uh, record that interview to talk about how we can get more people involved in the game here in American soccer, which is a huge, huge issue. And uh, really, really happy to have a chance to talk to him. As always, you can watch the show at danielwarman.com forward slash watch. We'll see you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.